field crest towards Clanton. Um, turn around. I was driving down Clanton. I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. This is at Columbus, subject to 1074, North Carolina, NCJA 1014. NCJA 1014. Hello, and welcome to the North Carolina Justice Academy 1014 podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. Our discussion on opioids continues today, and we're going to be focusing on one particular agency and how they are dealing with the ongoing opioid crisis, particularly in their community. And this is going to be a real interesting discussion because we're looking at not just the standpoint of law enforcement, but the treatment standpoint and the identification standpoint as well. Our guests today are Dr. Tony Gilbert, who is a police crisis counselor with the Jacksonville Police Department, and Chief Mike Yanero, who is, of course, the chief with the Jacksonville Police Department as well. Welcome to both of you, and thank you so much for taking your time to be part of this podcast today. Well, thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Dr. Gilbert, I'd like to start with you because you bring a very broad and interesting background to Jacksonville, and you don't find too many doctors that are working in police departments. First, let's talk about your background and how you ended up at Jacksonville PD. Sure. Um, Initially, I started uh, as a consultant to Jacksonville Police Department um, with uh, being a member of the community in a clinical sense. I was on many different types of task force, uh, such as the Suicide Task Force and a few others. And I came across Chief Inero and at the time Deputy Chief Malfitano as they attended many of these different types of task force. Uh, My initial background was as a deputy sheriff in uh, Florida, so I was familiar with law enforcement practices out of Florida, and one of the things that really struck me with Jacksonville Police Department and Chief Unero in particular was that how interested they were in uh, mental health and the, the community. And one of my main roles as a deputy sheriff was as a community police officer and so forth. And uh, long story short was they had applied for a grant for a police crisis counselor and Chief Inero had asked me to be a member of the board uh, to review for candidates and looking at the new program. So I had done that, they had hired somebody, uh, the position came open again, and we went through another round of candidates that we interviewed, but were unable at the time to find somebody that uh, met all the criteria that had been set forth. So I had made a kind of a joking comment at the end of all the the candidates and said, wow, maybe I should just apply for this. And at the time, uh, Captain Weaver, who was the, the, JPD representative was up and out of her seat and I looked at the other board member and said where did she go and 15 minutes later she came back down and said the uh, applications in your email and uh, we'll be looking to hear from you soon uh, <laughs> and uh, be what you say. <laughs> absolutely so that's how it began and I have been uh, highly impressed and enjoyed my time I don't consider it work but again I started my law enforcement career in 92 um, and and in all my years Jacksonville Police Department Chief Unero 
has been the most progressive law enforcement department uh, I have ever come across with regard to mental health, substance abuse, and just so proactive. So. Well, then, let's hear from that most progressive guy that Dr. Gilbert is talking about. Chief Yanero, you were not born a chief, so obviously you started coming up through the ranks, too. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Well, I, I actually started as a park ranger in 1979, and, uh, and I worked as a park ranger for a couple years, and then I, I worked as a deputy sheriff in Sullivan County, which is the near the, actually, North Carolina uh, Virginia line and then I worked for Bristol Tennessee Police Department for a number of years I retired from there and then uh, I've been in Jacksonville for the last 15 years as the chief well Jacksonville is a pretty unique community certainly because when you think of certain communities in North Carolina the Goldsboros the Fayettevilles the Jacksonvilles they all have one thing in common and that's the military yeah we, we have about uh, between 35 and 40,000 Marines and so, so there's a number of, of challenges with, uh, with the Marine Corps. You know, our population kind of uh, turns over every, every so often. So um, that, that presents us with, a, with, with some challenges. The other thing that I think is, is really unique about Jacksonville that you'll find is that our average age is 22.9. So, you know, most, most cities have, are, are in, in fact, it's the youngest city of our size in the country. We're about 70,000 uh, people, but it's, it's very young. And the other thing is it's very diverse, too, um, because the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps brings in folks from all over the country all, all, that have all different kinds of backgrounds. So it really does make us a different kind of community. And, and even so for military communities, because, you know, the military, seven out of 10 folks that live in Jacksonville are either military or military dependents or retirees. So the, the vast majority of us are uh, in, in that community are related to the military in some form or fashion. Well, I want to go ahead and not take up too much of your time, but get right into the subject. So, Chief, I'm going to start with you and just ask how or what happened that caused you to try and take your agency and your community in the direction of having a police crisis counselor. Looking at the overall mental health issues that most communities bring, and certainly with the military community, maybe that's exacerbated a little bit more than it would be someplace else. But how did y'all begin to start the discussion of opioids and mental health issues affecting your community? You know, it's kind of been an interesting, uh, an interesting journey as we looked at uh, a number of different things. So, really, a number of things occurred. First, we had two two young athletes in our community, not not in Jacksonville, but in the uh, in Onslow County, that overdosed on on opioids. And then we started to see uh, a number of overdoses. In 2015, we had 36 uh, deaths in, um, in the, the county that were related to overdoses. Um, and what, we've, what we continued to see is these overdoses continuing. So we started to look at that. And, and we, we, we had been having some discussion since 2012 uh, really about the, the issues that we were having with the mental health. Um, as, as, as mental health changed in our community, then uh, we lost our crisis center, we lost our uh, 
we, we had some real challenges with, with the mental health. And when you talk about substance abuse and talk about mental health, the two are so much inter, intertwined, it's hard to talk about one without the other. And uh, along that time came um, the Castlight study. And the Castlight study was, is, is about, uh, about 2015, as w- 2015 as well. It said that Jacksonville was number 12 in the country related to uh, opioids. And so they said about 8.2% of the people um, who received and abused opioids were in the community. And so if you take our if you take our entire county or you take our city, you know, we're talking about 16,000 people that uh, possibly either are prescribed opioids or abusing opioids. So that that was that was a number 12 that we did not want to be. So we had some discussions about that and what happened was the city council and the county commission came together. Um, imagine that. And they actually they actually d- developed a joint task force and that joint task force was to look at the mental health and the substance abuse piece. And so that that started a uh, a round of discussions about what do we need? What do we need to do to make our community a, a safer place? And, and, and in, the, in the context of community policing, those were some of the things that we looked at. And, you know, one of the things that happened along that time, too, was the fact that, um, you know, some discussions were, were about Ferguson and what happened in Ferguson and about reducing use of force and those kinds of things. And so... So when we talked to our council, our council was very proactive about what what can we do in Jacksonville to prevent Ferguson from happening here. We had those discussions, and 50% of all police shootings uh, are either uh, somebody that has some type of mental challenge, whether it's mental challenge or substance abuse. So how are we going to address that? How are we going to address that on the preventative side? So we had those discussions with our council. We had those discussions with the, the task force. And then we, we came up with a number of strategies. You know, because any problem that you look at is, is prevention, enforcement, and intervention. And what we tried to do is we tried to address all three. And, and that set our journey you know, in, in forming a crisis center and doing some things in the school and uh, all kinds of different, uh, because it's a complex problem. It's not something that, you know, that you can, that you can very easily identify and say, this is what we need to do to do it. it it's, it's very, very complex. Well, it's also a complex problem, and I appreciate you bringing those three prongs together. And the middle one is the one that most law enforcement guys kind of focus on. This is one of those situations that you cannot arrest your way out of. You're exactly right. I mean, you know, and, and we do a good job, uh, police in general do a good job of managing crime. So if, if somebody calls us and we respond, we can manage the crime very easily. We don't do as good at, at, um, at preventing crime, and we don't do as good as interventing, doing some type of intervention after crime. It, but those are things that we should be focusing on. And if, if we really want to stop the problem, if we really want to prevent these deaths, because we've had more deaths in the last five years uh, of opioids than suicides, homicides, and fatal traffic crashes combined. So th- this is a serious problem in our community. It's a serious problem in many communities across the country. 
Well, in my days as a law enforcement officer, it's refreshing to hear that intervention piece because ours was respond, report, repeat, and that was pretty much the way that you went through your shift. Now, with the focus turning a bit and seeing the police getting more involved, that response does not necessarily mean repeat anymore that you're directing people towards services and you're trying to prevent the repeats. So kudos for at least getting the ship headed in that direction in Onslow County. And, and we, we've, we've had some successes. We, we, do a, we do a program, in fact, that's going on right, right now um, where the SRO is meeting with all the athletes and they do a short presentation about opioids and the opioid issue. Uh, we were successful in using a, our, our mayor pro tem, who was the uh, president of the North Carolina League of Municipalities. Mike Lazara had brought back a program from the league that has a uh, that has a uh, has a middle school piece, uh, uh, elementary piece, and a high school piece, and we were able to implement that in the schools. So that we're talking about prevention because you know a, a young athlete gets injured. They start taking these opioids, and that's that's where we start to have some issues. Now, that that's not the only the only problem that we have, but it is one of the problems that we have. So, that ability for us to have that discussion when they're going out for the sport and in the health classes, I think, is is part of that prevention piece. Dr. Gilbert, I want to turn the discussion over your way, and Chief Yanero mentioned the word issues. So from your standpoint, what kinds of issues have you seen that may be increased within the community as a direct use of opioid use? We've seen a lot more calls for service in general uh, as it relates to the overdose and then the aftermath of the overdose for the families or the children. Uh, Some of the things that we have seen is... uh, you know, there's more children going into foster care and DSS or CPS type of calls that, uh, as a result of the overdoses. We've seen uh, the mental health system become overburdened and uh, really taking a hit and less resources as a result of that because they're, again, overburdened and overwhelmed as a result of you know, the opioid overdose, because we don't have a lot of substance abuse resources in Jacksonville, at least. And that's one of the things that we are trying to work on in general. And we've had the addition of the Dix Crisis Center, which is going, you know, is it's recently opened. So we'll, I, we'll continue to see, you know, more uh, effectiveness from them as, as their work continues. Um, We've seen, uh, you know, again, we've had issues all along nationwide. There's been problems with overburdening in the emergency department uh, with behavioral health. But with the opioid crisis, we're seeing that even, you know, double, triple. Um, I can say that, you know, with our emergency department, we have definitely seen those numbers increase. And, um, you know, and as a result, we're having to see more resources, people, and professionals trying to be more creative and trying to find ways to treat our individuals or come up with programs to be able to address these problems uh, because people want help, they need help. And then there's individuals that don't understand they need the help, so we have to uh, help them understand they do need the help because it is a systemic issue. And and, and economically, it, it really, uh, hits the community very hard um, and has a very global impact um, because you know our officers 
we'll keep going out and keep going out to the in our EMS system and our fire system, which then draws away from other, you know, crises that are continuing to go on that may not be opioid related or so forth. So um, I think, you know, those type of issues is what we see happen and what Chief Inero is, is alluding to when he is he is saying that. So, you know, we're trying to reduce that that, that recidivism issue that, that you were saying about, you know, respond, report, repeat. We're trying to get rid of that repeat issue by increasing uh, resources and link our officers are linking people to those particular resources and utilizing the available. You also mentioned the crisis center, which I know the community I'm from is in the process of trying to get to work on that. And I was in San Antonio and, and saw the way their crisis center works. And it's absolutely the model of how you would like your community to come together and try and tackle this problem. But I want to come back to you again, Dr. Gilbert, and ask the question of some of the methods you have in place to assist the community with the opioid crisis. And I know the crisis center is probably just a small piece of that. So we have been very fortunate in that, um, you know, through the years and, you know, our community leaders such as, you know, Chief Unero, uh, our leadership in our health department, leadership at our child advocacy center, uh, EMS, our fire department, and, and many of just our community agencies, non uh, 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 just many of those partnerships have really started to build. Um, and come together, whereas before we had some issues with it, but you know, in times of crisis, you, it's, it's interesting how you see people start to want to work together. So through those partnerships, through some um, fantastic council members and you know, county commissioners, the sheriff's office and so forth, everybody has realized this problem is global. It's affecting people at all different levels. So you know, our grant writers have been really wonderful about getting funds through these through the federal and state grants to be able to put programs into place, such as a quick response team where we respond within 24 to 72 hours after an overdose. We go out and that team is made up of law enforcement, uh, EMS and mental health and peer supports to go out to this person that is overdosed uh, and their family to try to get them into treatment, at least provide them the resources for treatment, and we keep working them in case manage them. Uh, and we try to hit them as soon as possible because following an overdose, that's when they're most vulnerable and hopefully can get into treatment. Um, we've done uh, a, a needs and gaps analysis of our resources in the community. That was huge, and Chief Inero was uh, you know, the one that initiated that particular process. Uh, we have, we've done a couple, but the big one was from a company out of, um, out of Chicago, uh, a task was the, who did that. And that was a very, very helpful to help us understand what do we have that is maybe we're not using as effectively as we could. What are we missing and how can we come together to make that happen? Uh, and he can speak more to that. We have another grant that, again, has brought two counties together, uh, again, to try to assess that, that has brought us to know who is in this other community and how can we bounce off each other. We've got the UNC School of Government grant that has, again, developed different types of campaigns that we are doing, uh, media campaigns, using our community leadership. We go to different uh, forums to see what other counties are doing, and we are doing different initiatives within the school, with our leadership, with uh, the uh, faith-based leaders 
one of our grants has us doing mental health first aid, which is uh, an eight-hour course that directly addresses, uh, teaches our law enforcement officers. And it's the goal of that is to get 100% of the officers in two counties to identify and understand the symptoms of mental health to be very effective at uh, help assisting an individual to get to the proper resource. We also teach it in the context of helping identify um, signs and symptoms in each other because we don't want our first responders to get burned out given how prevalent the problems are. And we, we, we need them to stay stable so they can help others. So we teach them to recognize it amongst each other. We do a 40-hour crisis intervention training for all officers and dispatchers we've added in there. Uh, and, that's ba and that's all based on substance abuse, mental health, uh, intellectual disability, geriatric dementia issues, officer wellness is included um, to again, and to address all of these issues. And we bring in community speakers so there's not just one person teaching it. De-escalation techniques is another. Through all these efforts, and there's there's so many more, I mean, continued meetings, monthly meetings, community meetings, um, you know, and Chief will probably talk about this as well. It's not just about educating the community, the impact with our officers and the use of force and things like that has just had this huge impact. And we've, in you know, my role initially when I came on was to go out with officers to these mental health calls to assist them with providing resources, to help de-escalate. But I've not had to do that as much because our officers have become very adept at being able to manage that. Um, so they'll call me if they have questions, but it's not as often. So my, my role has changed more to this programmatic and victim assistance type in another way because these programs that we've been doing has just really um, become very effective. And Well, and I think, too, on the kind of taking off just a little bit on the discussion and law enforcement in general, we've spent time training on things that we thought were most important. So we may come to the Justice Academies and spend a week on investigations or on firearms or radar or whatever the case, and it seems like we've always allowed mental health to take a back seat. So the fact that you bring out mental health first aid and I've talked to officers who have said that is the eight best hours they have ever spent in the classroom. And those who go through crisis intervention training saying the same thing. I think that focus of bringing mental health forward, getting it off the back row and bringing it to the front, is getting police officers trained in how to recognize situations that could go bad instead of just relying on it to be a voluntary or involuntary commitment. So, Chief Yanero, I want to turn back to you, and you mentioned that two of the athletes in your community who were part of the opioid crisis. Was this or this one particular thing that led you to your crisis center coming off the ground? Because, again, because again, it's like the bad intersection in your city where there's a fatality and all of a sudden everyone screams, we need a traffic light there. And they've been screaming that for years. Was there a particular incident that led to this? I think there's a couple things. I think the, the, those two youth uh, obviously had an impact in the community. But also, I mean, we went back and we looked at how many hours we were spending. 
So, you know, we were spending about 12,000 hours on mental health and then another 6,000 on, you know, and when we look at that and we look at how many, how many officers that is, I mean, that's the equivalent of eight to 10 full-time police officers. And it, it was, it's costing the city a million dollars a year. So when we started talking about, hey, these are the things, these are the issues that we're having, you know, we can't get them into a mental health crisis center. You know, really the only choice that we had was either the emergency room or jail. And so we didn't have the, the resources that we needed. So we, we talked a lot about that, especially that's, that's, that was one of the, the pushes to, you know, when, when, it, when you tell a city councilman we have a $23 million budget for all public safety, and a million of that is going toward uh, officers trying to de-escalate, officers trying to deal with, with homeless, uh, people with mental health challenges that are homeless, m- and people with mental health challenges that in general, you know, I tell the story about a guy that, that, that we took to the, uh, to the um, to a, a center that was located in the city a couple of years ago. They took him there one time and he was released. They took him back another time and he was released and finally they IVC'd him. He was doing all kinds of bizarre stuff uh, every time they released him. So part of the issue was that we just didn't have the resources that we were. So we started to look at that and, you know, we mentioned TASC, that it was Treatment Alternatives for Safe Communities. And they're, they're, a, they're a national program and, and we actually have a TASC in North Carolina, a TASC chapter in North Carolina. And TASC was developed because in the, in the 1960s uh, for folks that were coming back from Vietnam that had heroin issues. And so they, they've, since the 1960s, they've been involved in, in that kind of thing. And they came in and they did some, uh, some interesting things for us. They looked at our community, looked at the capacity that we had, and made a number of suggestions on what we can do to increase that capacity. And the existing capacity that we have, how can we utilize it in a better way? So, you know, the, the crisis center is one, one part of it. So now we're talking about, well, what do they do when they come out the back door of the crisis center? Where are they going to go? How's that, how's that process going to look? And how are we going to keep them into treatment? Because if, if we can get them detoxed and we can keep them into treatment, then, uh, you know, uh, it, it takes about a year or two before they can actually become what we think is cured. Um, and somebody has to help them along the way. And so now since the crisis center is open, one of the things that we're looking at is that next step. And we've applied for a couple of federal grants that we hope that will give us um, some resources that we can use to, um, to make our community a much safer place. And, you know, one of the things that they did tell us is that, you know, we do have some capacity in our system and we're not using it as much as we should. And so how can we make it more effective? And that, that all goes back to, you know, when you, when you talk about that repeat call, our goal is to try to get them into treatment and to prevent that repeat call. And if we can do that, then, then, we'll, then we'll reduce the demand and officers can do other things that are much more, much more proactive. Well, I think there's another piece to this that we haven't brought to the table just yet, and it doesn't have a direct impact on your agency, but it certainly does for Onslow County because they operate a detention center. That's true. So there's the diversion piece that you bring into this. 
Are there individuals who may be affected by either mental health or drug issues that are at a local convenience store? They're showing out. So what happens? It's like you said earlier, what are my choices? Well, I can arrest him for drunken disruptive or second-degree trespassing, and I'm going to take him to jail. And if he's homeless, he doesn't have the resources to bond. He's going to stay in the detention center. He's going to cost the citizens day-to-day until he finally comes to trial. 30 days later, the judge releases him on time served. So really, what have we achieved? Well, and, and, you know, part of one of the federal grants that we have that's going on right now is to, to embed some mental health workers in the crisis center. I mean, in, excuse me, in the, in, the, in, in the detention center. And that, you know, the city and the county actually partner. Now, we don't operate the detention center. Of course, we bring a lot of folks there, but we don't operate the detention center. But, but the need is such, so great because, you know, even if we can divert them, which is the goal of the, you know, we had two goals when we set out to, uh, to operate the Dix Crisis Center. And, and that those goals were, one, divert them from the emergency room, two, divert them from the criminal justice system. Um, but, you know, those folks that we can't divert at least can get some treatment now in our detention center because we have those folks going in and, and looking at substance abuse issues and mental health issues and how they can get them out. So once they get out, at least they're following them and trying to get them into the right, uh, right service. Dr. Gilbert, let's try and tie this thing together if we can. How and where does the mental health issues and the opioid crisis intersect? I know that's a complex question. I'm sorry. It really is because you're asking, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And um, sometimes it's it, they are just concomitant, um, you, know, you know, meaning that uh, the mental health issues may have come first, meaning they may have had some diagnosable condition, meaning anxiety, depression, some psychosis or whatever that might, you know, the, the case may be, and they started utilizing, uh, you know, some type of opiate-based uh, medication or derivative thereof to self-medicate those particular symptoms. Um, and then became easily addicted in that particular process. The other side of this is they may have had an ongoing chronic medical condition and became easily addicted through a prescription process, uh, you know, unbeknownst to the providing physician. You know, there have been, and, and or vice versa, you know, there's genetic components to substance abuse as well and, uh, you know, that, that runs in the family and people may not understand that they have that genetic component or, you know, there's so many factors that play into substance abuse and mental health. Um, and so some people don't really get a fair start at the beginning and, these things are very challenging to eradicate, and resources are paramount to uh, addressing it as well as support. And what, unfortunately, what happens in opioid addiction, and really any addiction, but opioids I'm finding, or we find, I think, more prominent, is that the family gets burnt out because, uh, you know, the addiction is so hard to fight. We have a medication-assisted treatment, but sometimes if one addiction gets traded for the other, you know, Suboxone or for Methadone or whatever derivative, and, you know, they've already tapped the family, they've stolen from the family, they've been in and out of treatment or detoxes, and the family's like, I'm done. 
you know, I, I just can't do this anymore, and they give up on that individual, and and so the person is left with nobody, uh, or they feel that way, and so they're like, well, you know, that hits their self-esteem, and it just continues to, to go downhill. And, and unfortunately, one of the biggest parts of rehab is feeling like they have a support system. Uh, because you really can't do that alone. Um, and sometimes those 12-step pro- the 12-step programs or any type of um, alternative treatment in and of itself isn't enough support. But what I will say, it's a good place to start. So, uh, you know, we have to have those resources. And, and what I would tell anybody is you have to start somewhere in order to begin that journey of healing and, and not to think that it can't ever happen because it can. Um, and there are programs and availability for that. And there is, you know, funding. The state has provided some funding, and there are grants and things like that for providers to assist. Well, you used two words in that answer, availability and providers. And it seems like when we talk about opioids and the availability, that sometimes it is a provider issue. Sometimes providers are dispensing too many opioids at one time, or there's just not enough control. In your community, have you brought some medical folks to the table as well to have this very tough discussion with them? We have. Um, you know, Onslow Memorial Hospital, actually, their medical director at the time has done pulled together some medical CEs, medical, you know, continuing education stuff for the providers of the community, specifically around this particular topic, around the STOP Act, um, around just prescribing, uh, you know, habits. They've brought in the pharmacists from the state. Uh, and talked about these particular issues, and it happened to be at the time that he, you know, that the medical director at the time was actually the pain management. Um, he owned the large, he owns the largest pain management in our city, so that was, you know, very good as well. So it's an ongoing discussion, and uh, with one of the task force that we have, that's uh, through University of North Carolina um, School of Government, uh, we actually have invited one of the pain management. Uh, physicians in our community to join us uh, at one of our large community meetings to come in and talk and and help you know address this particular issue and she's also willing to bring providers together and talk about prescribing habits one of the grants that we have uh, working with the schools or that we've applied for that is the aim of one of the particular efforts within that grant that we're we're trying to address too is continuing to work with people or physicians that work with athletes, injured athletes and such. Uh, Because we do feel like it's very important that everybody in our community is working at least off the same page. And, you know, the hospital itself is, you know, the hospital is exempt from uh, u- utilizing the North Carolina Controlled Substance Reporting System because they already have different regulations in place, but private providers are supposed to be using that. But the hospital uses it anyway, even though they're exempt because they want to show that we're being diligent in this respect. So they're still partnering, and it's important to, to know that. So there are a lot of efforts in that respect. Well, I feel this is a discussion that could go on all day long, and I know that both of you certainly have better things to do. So, Chief, I want to give you one more opportunity to bring some things to the table that we haven't touched on yet that are important to you. Well, I think there's a couple things. First, uh, I would uh, I would applaud the Attorney General's um, 
efforts to address opioids statewide. And he has a toolkit that's on his website. Uh, he's been very active. He, he came to our community. Um, and I would I'd also talk about the, the North Carolina League of Municipalities. They also have a opioid toolkit. And for communities that are looking for um, resources on how to build plans, how to, how to look at this as a more strategic approach. And I'd, I'd be remiss if I hadn't uh, didn't thank our, our own Senator Brown, who is ve- who's very instrumental in getting the funding for the Dix Crisis Center. So uh, you know th- that's th- that kind of shows you um, you know we have the league, we have the Attorney General, and uh, and our and our state senator who are all aware of the problem and are all working on different levels to try to address the problem. Well, it is, in fact, as we mentioned at the on-site, a global problem, but kudos to what's going on in Onslow County, and I think you will serve as a model, if you aren't already there, to 99 other counties in the state of North Carolina who can see that it can be done. It takes a little while, takes a lot of collaboration, but one step at a time, one day at a time, and sometimes, unfortunately, one death at a time. Thank you very much, Dr. Tony Gilbert and Chief Mike Yanero. Well, thank you. Thank you. Both with the Jacksonville Police Department in Onslow County. Dr. Gilbert is the police crisis counselor and psychologist. And, of course, Chief Mike Yanero leads the Jacksonville Police Department. And I think Dr. Gilbert hit it right on the head when she said one of the more progressive police chiefs that she's had an opportunity to see in North Carolina. Thank you both very much for what you do and how you do it. The next time you're on one of our campuses, please stop by the North Carolina Justice Academy bookstore. There you can find books, t-shirts, collectible coins, and much more. You've been listening to the North Carolina Justice Academy 1014. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. If you have any questions that you would like answered, please contact us. Send any questions or topics you would like to hear discussed to ncjainformation at ncdoj.gov. We're here for you.